This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Patrick Briscoe. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Patrick, how are you? Well, since last we recorded an episode, I'm doing very well. <laughs> no, uh, Father Gregory and I were just on the podcast here um, at the end of October into November. We were talking about death, judgment, resurrection, all these great topics, distinguishing between the particular judgment and the general judgment. It's very exciting. So we thought we'd follow that episode up, right, with an episode on heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got some thoughts about heaven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just fill in the blank with the topic of this yeah. sandwich nice. episode. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Good. Nice. Um, thank you. Wow. Yeah. Well done. Um, See, I know that because of Frozen, which is a derivative reference, but I know it, which is pop culture knowledge that I have. So I'm proud of myself. Yeah. I th- that's very special that you mentioned Frozen because Frozen would be the opposite of what we're talking about, heaven. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Frozen would be not heaven yeah. um, or at least that's what my friends who've seen it who have little children who sing do you want to build a snowman, a snowman? right yeah also that's a very traditional a affirmation times. on your part because in dante's divine comedy which represent the 75th 76th and 77th books of the bible um you heard it here <laughs> first folks no nope, i'm sorry 74th 5th and 6th mm. um the the lowest circle of hell is frozen in fact Cocytus, with its four sub-dimensions, uh, is a frozen lake in which one is, you know, congealed in the midst of his sinful rebellion. Um, so, kudos to you for drawing that connection. If albeit. the prophet Dante has said it, it is true. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I, caught some, I caught some shade for that in the novitiate, the frequency with which I, I would quote Dante and G.K. Chesterton, because in that semi-literate stage of my life, which continues until the present day, I'd really only read Dante and G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> That could be part of your iconography. We can add that to the shore microphone. Right. You can hold the microphone and then a copy of the Divine Comedy. Right. That'd and then great. the alarm clock that says too early and the cup of coffee that says too gross. Um, <laughs> but alas, here we are. All right. So um, we thought that we'd think and talk about the theme of heaven. Um, when you, I mean, when you broach the subject, let's say in the context of an RCIA class or when you are talking to somebody who has no real concept of the Christian understanding of heaven, what are the first things that you begin with? Like, how do you hmm. shake up some of these dogmatic, slumbery notions that non-Christians entertain about this Christian reality? Yeah, I'm glad you added that last part to the question, because I think the most important thing we can do whenever we're presenting any truth of the Christian faith is to clear away errors about false ideas, right? So there are traditions, Islam, that say that paradise is essentially an eternal experience of earthly goods, such as they can be conceived of sensual passions. This is not the Christian view of heaven. Um, In Christian heaven, you don't get 72 virgins, for example. So I think right away we have to acknowledge that different religious traditions have different understandings of what is meant by this word. Or consider that Buddhist nirvana, which often gets today in the West, gets lumped in with some kind of vague notion of an eternal state of general pacifiedness. I guess, uh, you know, is kind of is kind of how it gets broadly described um, in the conversations that I've had. Uh, the Christian understanding of heaven is something more than just a kind of peaceful state of integrated wholeness. I mean, it is that, but it's so much more. Heaven is very dynamic. So, so right away, I think those are two two suggestions of what eternal life or heaven is going to look like from two different religious traditions. 
that have kind of worked their way into into our understanding of heaven. And the last one that I would propose as an error to be cleared away is the kind of cartoon of Christian heaven in general. Um, although the Simpson depiction of Christian heaven is pretty good if mm. we wanted to use a cartoon image where Homer is in Catholic heaven and he's flying up and down on a trampoline and just having a great time and Marge is in Protestant heaven having tea. Um, so, <laughs> so there are, there are cartoon versions of heaven that I wouldn't want, would want to affirm. But um, the cartoon version of Christian heaven that we become angels and we strum our harps ad nauseum for eternity, that has to go too because that's not really what we're talking about either. So I, th- I would say those, those three false visions of heaven, one, that heaven is uh, an, an infinite experience of sensual pleasure, two, that heaven is just a kind of passive state of integration akin to an Eastern vision of nirvana, that has to go, and three, that heaven is simply um, church forever, <laughs> the, the, the angel strumming of harps, um, that has to go too. So I want to clarify those three false notions right away and, and move those off the table. Yeah. Let's, let's start. Let's just go through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so as to the first, we want to stress the continuity between our life here on earth and then the life in heaven. So rather than thinking about it as like delayed gratification, like deny yourself all kinds of worldly goods and then enjoy those worldly goods in abundance in the life beyond, we want to stress the fact of like, a progressive acclimatization almost like this image that we often discuss from the great divorce where heaven is more real than earth right so the blades of the grass you described this at the god's planning retreat the blades of grass um find well the souls find the blades of grass to be too sharp for their very feet because mm. they're too real or they're more real than we are by comparison so yeah what do we gain by thinking about uh, heaven as something towards which we are here and now tending or striving that's continuous with our experience of life on earth um, and as we as we shoot for something like a progressive acclimatization rather than delayed gratification. Yeah, that's right. So um, I would point to immediately the moral life, the fact that the main points that Christ calls us to live by are called beatitudes uh, and we call heaven beatitude. Uh, that there are ways where heaven begins even now in that kind of living. Mm-hmm. Um, so virtue, as the tradition tells us, is its own reward, and that it's that that our foregoing of certain things that are pleasurable on the sensual level um, gives a kind of gratification here and now. Actually, so so not not all glory is being put off. I want to push back on that argument right away. Um, I do also want to affirm too that. Um, by doing that, by saying, okay, I'm going to live my life a certain way because I, I hope for the, the glories of heaven, um, that, that that is real. And we do know that, that, um, that those things are going to be transformed. So for example, religious life, right? Um, following the way of the Lord Jesus, um, Christ who is poor, chaste, and obedient, that does mean foregoing certain things that are goods in themselves on this side of eternity um, in favor of the promised goods of the kingdom. It does mean that. So, I think, so we have to acknowledge that at a certain level, right? Yeah, and I think specifically with respect to religious life, St. Thomas talks about these three uses of the vows or the evangelical councils. So they heal the effects of concupiscence. They limit the kind of care that we exercise for secondary goods. And then they offer the whole of the person. So even the first two uses are for the sake of the third use. And you have that progressive acclimatization there because when will we be wholly offered unto the Lord? It's in the life of heaven. And it's for this reason that religious life is sometimes referred to in the tradition as incoatio beatitudinis, like the very beginning or incoation of beatitude. So the idea is that the religious 
is so struck by the thought of heaven that he goes a little bit crazy and attempts to live heaven here and now with a kind of vehemence, with a kind of rigor and vigor. It's like, whoa, settle down. And he's like, but what if I didn't settle down for my whole life? <laughs> and you're like, okay, cool. All right, we're going to put you in a separate building, okay? And we're going to give you lots of prayers to say, okay? So that way you'll be and, occupied. <laughs> and you can wear these clothes too. That way all the rest of us know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to cut your hair in silly ways or lose our hair in silly ways. Um, so, yeah, so this idea that we undertake, you know, like in for, for all Christians of whatever rank or status who are called to the perfection of charity, they undertake to live the spirit of the councils with just that end in mind so that their life here might become more transparent to their life there or that their life here might become more kind of intentionally or deliberately intentional vis-a-vis the life of heaven. Which I think is cool because if it's just like deny yourself, white knuckle here, et cetera, et cetera, if you make a kind of idol of asceticism, then you lose that beautiful connection, right? right? right. You lose that trajectory. All right, so let's pass then to the second point uh, that you described, this, this nirvana state, a kind of passivity, a kind of exit from whatever, the karmic cycle. Um, we think about it not as so much like static as a dynamic reality. I think here of what C.S. Lewis says about, you know, further up and further in. And it's not that like, you know, heaven's getting better and better with each and every day, but heaven represents, you know, the point at which the individual fires on all cylinders, the point at which we come into the fullest realization of our human powers of intellect and will, of our emotional life, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe, yeah, speak a little bit to that, the dynamism of heaven. Right. So at the end of the fifth gospel, um, the divine comedy, uh, <laughs> Dante presents, I think, just then one of the most tremendous visions of this in all of Christian literature, right? Where Dante is able to gaze on the love which moves the sun and the other, other stars. The idea that love is doing something. This is the love that has fired the universe, that powers the universe, and Dante can gaze on it, right? He describes looking into the Trinity as seeing the three orbs as if they were one, but yet they were three. Um, so you, you, get a, you get a couple glimpses, uh, a couple beautiful depictions, a couple beautiful ideas about what this might, might be like. But the orbs are moving, the love is moving. This is how, this is how all of the heavens and the earth continue in their, in their forward motion. And, and so I, I think that captures really this key that heaven is a dynamic, not a static thing, right? That, that heaven is an experience of God's love that offers a, a per, the perpetual opportunity to go deeper in. We have to claim that because God is infinite. Um, and without that, there would be a terminus in heaven which would be deeply problematic. Yeah, I think of, um, so St. John Damascene, St. Thomas Aquinas quotes St. John Damascene in the first part of the Summa in the treatise on the one God. And in there he describes God as an infinite ocean of substance, which I love for a variety of reasons. Uh, But this idea that in heaven we are plunged into the infinite ocean of substance who is God. And it's this, you know, like we've all had experiences of going to the beach or going to the lake or going to whatever. Um, And this experience that, like saps you of your strength. You're like, what have I done? I've like sat in the sun and I've read a book and I've gone swimming a little bit and maybe boogie boarded or body surfed or whatever. And you're just like, holy smokes, that was, that was so delightful. And it was so taxing. I think this idea that when you, when you plunge into this, whatever, you know, this body of water, it's just like, it draws on you as a human person, but that the life of heaven is more so and beyond and analogically turned up to 11. And this is spinal tap terms, uh, right? Because like, it, we're not talking about physical water here. We're talking about you know, the well of divine life, you know, which is present to us in our interior being and which makes us to, to live, you know, it's it like, you know, wells up within us unto eternity. So, um, 
Yeah, like you don't want to, again, you don't want to portray it in such a way that it sounds like heaven's getting better and better and there's something lacking to the original stages of heaven and not lacking to the subsequent stages of heaven. But we want to cap, yeah, like you said, we want to capture something of this movement, something of this excitement, which is awesome. And that kind of does already lead into the third point. So you describe, you know, heaven as perpetual church or heaven as this kind of caricature, this cartoony thing. Um, and it challenges us imaginatively and mystically to think beyond the limits of some of our negative associations. So, you know, we can be honest and say not all of us love church for every minute that we're in church. And that might be because church is especially boring. It might be because church is normally boring or it might be because we're boring or whatever, you know, any number of reasons for which. So for those who fear maybe maybe like in a pagan sense, the heaven where you're on like a a lounge chair being fed seedless fruits unto ages of ages or like heaven where you're going to a two hour and 15 minute mass with like procession after procession like what is it what is it that we're afraid of when we image it in that way and how is it that the reality of heaven kind of speaks back to us in a way that's consoling and encouraging and enticing on this side of eternity part of the difficulty of worship <clears throat> is that things are yet to be revealed, right? We're, we're on the way, we're pilgrims, so things remain in a shadow. Uh, there is mystery in liturgy, things are not clear. We see Christ hidden under the form of bread, under the form of wine, right, in the, in the Eucharist. Heaven, uh, in heaven, those things are revealed and we see them as they really are. We see him as he truly is, right? We shall see face to face, the scriptures promise us, and St. Thomas captures that a lot. So I think one of the things one of the ways, one of the aspects under which we come up short under this third idea of heaven as perpetual liturgy is that liturgy is a point, as we experience it now, is a pointing towards heaven. And so if we hit that too hard, we, we begin to think of heaven as the point of infinite mystery, which is not. Heaven is the place of clarity when things are revealed. Um, so that would be one thing that I would, one thing that I would point to. Liturgy, in liturgy, there's still a veil. We're still looking through the veil um, into that which will someday uh, truly be. Yeah, I think it's Pseudo-Dionysius who describes, uh, describes the life of heaven as one that is veiled in light. Mm -hmm. And Dante also captures some of this imagery where it's as if, you know, like the shadows by light flit by light or something like that, which I don't know how it actually reads in the original language, but who cares because yada yada this and such. But um, yeah, this idea that it's like, it's light that veils or light that clothes or light that mediates the experience because, you know, it's, it's still too much for us. Like we need our minds illumined in order to enter into this reality um, so that we can bear the weight thereof. And even still, you know, we're not going to comprehend God in the end because he remains greater than our minds and hearts. You know, eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor is it so much as dawned on the heart of man what God is ready for those who love him. So, okay, we somewhat intentionally, somewhat unintentionally have structured this now as like an article of the Summa. So we have three objections, responses to the objections. But in the middle, I think that it's helpful to highlight the, you know, the kind of interpersonal or the relational reality mm -hmm. of heaven. Because I think that a lot of us have the experience on earth of limitations in our human relationships, right. whether it be distance or lack of comprehension or like an inability to entrust yourself to the other and to receive the other back, um, or like a fear of loss, a fear of change, a fear, whatever. You know, there are like a lot of things about our relationships which make it such that they're a little bit anxious, a little bit stressy. Uh, whereas in heaven, that's, I mean, it's the perfect relationship. It is the absolutely perfect relationship. So maybe we can talk then a little bit about, yeah, like the relationship dimension of heaven where we get God and God gives himself. 
Yeah, I think the point that the image from scriptures that can help us most in, in this as we're thinking about the interpersonal dimension is actually the uh, the analogy, the image of heaven that Christ gives us uh, as a wedding banquet, right? That heaven is a wedding feast. Why is that? Well, because weddings that are terrible or that we experience as terrible, we experience as terrible mostly because we don't really love the bride and groom or we don't feel connected to them or we don't or we don't like the place uh, or uh, there or there are many other things about weddings that could be very inconvenient. Um and when we think about heaven as the glorious wedding banquet, uh, we love the groom. We love the bridegroom. We desire, He's the one that our, our most desires. He's the one we're looking for. Um, we desire to be with the other guests. We desire to be with the saints, to be with our lost family members. Um, we want to be there. Um, we want to be with them. So I think when we, when we consider those aspects of heaven as wedding banquet, we begin to, to see, to touch on what, what you're proposing, that in heaven we get, a, we, get a, a, we get to live in rightly ordered relationships with everyone forever. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, here in this regard, I think especially of the image that C.S. Lewis uses of being seated across the table of the heavenly banquet and hell is, okay, well, seated across the table of the heavenly banquet. We all have very large forks. In every thought experiment, there's going to be a bizarre element. We all have very large forks. And in hell, you try to feed yourself and you fail to do so because it keeps going off askew. Whereas in heaven, you feed each other. All right, now the image has certain limitations and it's a little bit precious, but what we garner from it is the fact that we're made for relationship. Hmm. Hell is a rejection of that or a kind of thoroughgoing failure to recognize that fact and to respond to that fact, whereas heaven embraces it wholly and entirely. And I think here of a conversation I had with a religious sister, and she was, she was grappling with this image where she was saying, okay, you know, a man and a woman get married and they have each other. They have an exclusive relationship where they are possessed and possess. All right, that's, and that's a, really, that's a really rich image that's applied throughout the spiritual life for you know, the marriage of the soul and God. She says, okay, I've given up that to have Jesus. And if I'm going to have Jesus, I want to have him in an exclusive relationship, right? I don't want to have the experience of sharing him. And I was just like, hey, that's a real honest sharing moment right yeah, there. Correct. Like, yeah, correct. That's real you. talk. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'd like blushed and like said a couple of things and did not uh, like offer a satisfactory answer. It's nope. just like, what, what, what are you going to say? You know, but it's like, <laughs> there has to be something about the experience of heaven, which images that that perfection. So a man and a woman love each other. They have exclusive relationship whereby they give and are received. They possess and are possessed. And what we hope to have in God is like that, but super eminently, you know, like, um, what would you say? Purified of any limitation as pre-containing it most highly. Um, so yeah, maybe like we can, you know, stumble around in the dark and think a little bit about this idea of, you know, our experience of distance in earthly relationships and what that might look like in heaven or our experience of yeah, sharing in earthly relationships and what that might look like in heaven. I don't know. Yeah, your thoughts. In heaven, I, you've pointed out something very important that I want to emphasize. In the Christian vision of heaven, we don't lose ourselves, yeah, yeah. right? We're not turned into the great eternal one. Um, we become God, which is very complicated in Christian understanding of divinization, but we don't lose ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, so I think this, this process of being united to God um, involves a kind of giving over and a kind of sharing that doesn't require loss or exclusion. Um, I think that's the beginning of a response to the to the to the problem this sister is raising, which, as we said, is a very significant one. Um, yeah, that that would be where I would want to start to emphasize that that what she says is true um, for especially for a Christian understanding of heaven. We don't lose ourselves, and there is an element of um, there is an element of 
what we will experience as heaven that, that has to belong just to me, that, that will satisfy a particular longing that I have. It doesn't mean there are going to be miniature schnauzers in heaven necessarily, although there could be, um, but uh, probably not. Uh, St. <laughs> Thomas doesn't think so. But um, it, do, it does mean that, that, that I, understand, uh, I understand part of what she's getting at, which is that there are, there are things that I need that nobody else needs. Mm-hmm. And God knows that and will be ready to satisfy that. And about that, I'm absolutely convinced. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, just kind of reflecting a little bit on her question, you think about yeah, so human relationships and the experience of distance, and I think this comes clue. It comes through most clearly in the context of romantic relationships or mm-hmm. marriage. So uh, it's evident that that the lover wants to be close to the beloved, and the beloved reciprocates that desire, provided that there's genuine love between them. But you see people work this out in different ways. So the unchaste lovers, like a lot of the language that you would encounter there, like I'm thinking like Brideshead Revisitor or whatever, you, you talk about like wanting almost to consume the beloved, right? right. To devour the beloved, right. to assimilate the beloved. Whereas in here we can think of St. John Paul II, the theology of the body, the way that he described the nuptial meaning of the body, namely that the body is for a, you know, a gift. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's to be given away so as to be received. And, and doing that means a kind of, what vulnerability, perhaps, um, uh, which is a terrible prospect while here on earth, but something like it's a fear from which we're going to be freed in heaven. So the way that I overcome the distance is by bridging the distance in generosity, in, in entrustment, however you want to describe that best. And that in heaven, the experience of that, you know, response, which God himself inspires by his grace, will be purified of all lack and all limitation. So this kind of suspicion that's been introduced by sin and you know heightened by our failures to consent to and cooperate with the grace of god is going to be it's going to be healed it's going to be purified and we're going to be emboldened and we're going to be encouraged to be you know the lord's holy and entirely um so yeah i don't know maybe your thoughts about this language of saint john paul ii with the sincere gift of self I, I think it's absolutely true, uh, everything that John Paul II has said on, uh, on the matter. Um, and I think we can point to, uh, you know, as we, as we continue to unpack this here, I think we can point to the family and uh, really, really step into that moment because love is generative and diffusive. And that the Catholic vision of romantic love is not Lady and the Tramp um, munching on a piece of spaghetti together, right, lost in each other's eyes for eternity, um, but, but heading towards something together right? That would be the Catholic view of romantic love, of a bride and groom chasing together the great horizon of life, you know, running, running to the great horizon of life together, um, not, seeking, not seeking fulfillment in each other. Um, so, so if we understand love in that way, um, we understand that love is um, generative, that parents have children. This is how Catholic family life is ordered um, on both the natural and supernatural level. And the love is diffusive, that it's not, um, that it's not kept for our own selves that more love happens when love is shared, mm-hmm. right? Um, love is the opposite of banks. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think it transitions us. It transitions us. That, oof, not nice. actually as hard as I thought it was going to be. Right. We can now transition. <laughs> transition, happen, grunt, move. Um, so into maybe just a little bit of meditation on the common good, which is a slippery concept. It's an elusive concept. It's something that we often talk about in Catholic social teaching, but I think we find it very difficult to pin down because when it's like, quick, tell me what you think the common good is, somebody was often you know, tempted to say, it's like, you got the stuff and then you put the stuff in a pile and then everyone gets the stuff. It's like, well, not exactly. You know, turns out that the common good has to do with these relationships, which constitute us in kind of like, well, family, 
polity, church, and that taken together, those relationships are more than just the individuals. So like, for instance, you know, man and woman love each other, they get married, and then they beget children, right? They, they welcome children into the world. Their love is so significant that it's generative, like you said. And so it's not just like, you know, some of the parts, right? You guys are just zygote producers. Like, no, there's something else going on here, okay? Um, and, and when a man and a woman, you know, dissolve a marriage, you know, through divorce, it's not like, okay, I'll take half of these goods, you take half of those goods. No, you might be able to divide up the material possessions, but you just lose the family. He feels so vigorously or vehemently about this that he slaps his microphone. Um, you just, the family's gone, right? The good of the family is imperiled and children suffer the effects of that in a really significant way. So in heaven, I'm thinking of this line from the circle of envy in the Purgatorio, where the soul who is being purged with his eyes sewn shut as he weeps through the cracks that remain he says, in heaven, we will no, no longer say mine and thine. We will truly say ours. Mm -hmm. So how is that not just like a John Lennon nonsense imagined vision or like neo-communism or like silliness? Uh, how is that something that we as Christians can be animated by? Yeah. Good. So uh, I will point to the liturgical principle. Yes. Yes, we'll go for the mystery. Um, Father Gregory and I are both priests, which means we offer the Holy Mass. The Mass is not ours. Not ever. I don't have, like we talk casually, oh, I've got my mass at nine o'clock or I have to say my mass or whatever. Okay, but the mass is not something that belongs to me. And I think it's interesting in the dispensation of grace, Christ in his wisdom decided that we would worship together. He did not set this up such that there would be a one-to-one -one parishioner priest ratio. That's not how the church has ever worked, actually. It's always been a, a collective in worship. Um, in parishes, there are plenty of people we might want to vote off the island, but that's not an option. There's, some, there's something deeper there. Um, and so I think that by looking at what the Eucharist, what the Eucharist means, that it's in, an expression of our love for God as a community, we can see something of what heaven means, um, our expression of love, that is more than just me. Yeah. No, I, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, yeah, just thinking a little bit about the sharing, the genuine sharing of heaven. I am struck by this line from St. Augustine, maybe it's from St. Augustine, certainly, the, well, whatever. Um, St. Thomas, when he talks about, I'll just, I'll just, I know all these things from St. Thomas. Yeah, yeah. I know thing. all these things from St. Yeah. Thomas, and sometimes he's quoting a person, and I want to be respectful of that, but I also don't care. Um, so when St. Thomas talks, <laughs> <laughs> when he talks about heaven, source, criticism, when he talks about heaven, he says, in the ordinary course, when you know a thing, mm -hmm. that thing, becomes part of you. So like I'm looking at this icon and I form an image of it and I abstract from that image and I have a notion in my mind. So the thing out there comes to be in here. Whereas he says with heaven, we go out towards it. Mm -hmm. It's an ecstatic movement because heaven can't fit within the compass of our minds. It's rather we who are drawn into the knowing act, which is wild. And something that's cool is that it's very similar to the way, and I know this is St. Augustine. St. Augustine describes our relationship to the Eucharist. He mm -hmm. says, in the ordinary course, That's when you right. eat something, it becomes part of you. But in the case of our consuming of the most blessed sacrament, we become part of it because we become more perfectly the body of Christ. So maybe, you know, in our final couple minutes, your thoughts on, yeah, the liturgy, the sacred liturgy, the Holy Mass as our, yeah, beginning of the life of heaven. How do we think about that? I think that the most powerful moments of liturgy are powerful because they do exactly what you've been you've been talking about. They they draw us out of ourselves. When we're at when we're at a mass and we realize that we've lost track of how much time is going on, I think that's one of those moments that we can point to. We can say, Yes, heaven will be like that. Where you're where you're there, you're in the moment, you you don't understand anything else that's going on outside of the fact that, that you're just there. 
with everyone who's there. You're celebrating, you're praying. Um, it's heartfelt. It's deeply moving, um, and everything is subject to its its <laughs> its proper end. I, I think that I think that that sense of loss of time is one of the most Im- most important hints we get of what it's going to be like because we're not we're not being conscious of uh, me what I have to do um, the 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 order of uh, things that I'm responsible or capable of, responsible for or capable of, um, but but we we just get lost uh, in a sense. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe a, a parallel experience or a related experience is the experience of getting called up. There's a lot of things in the sacred liturgy that cause me to kind of drift up. I mean, I'm I have a hyperactive practical intellect, so I'm always thinking You're also about the list. Tall. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, but like I'm always thinking about the list and the items on the list and when they're going to get done and blah 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 and this and such. So it's I am just I'm always looking down and whatever. I repent of that, Lord, heal me, grow me, amen, etc. Um, but there are things about the sacred liturgy which cause you to go up. I mean, even like the use of incense, the fact that there's a kind of drift towards the rafters that we try to use like chant and polyphony, which directs our gaze in a way that's beyond just this worldly. The fact that, you know, like I'm thinking about when I was assigned at St. Louis Bertrand, where there's this big pulpit, you know, way up there, you're probably like eight, nine feet above the congregation. It's like, look up, right? Because our help comes from the hills. And there are things about that experience, which are, yeah, just, just simple, right? Kind of modest means, but they are powerful in communicating this reality. Like we tend towards a place which is not included within the material conditions of the present moment. And um, yeah, the little ways in which we can seek to be recollected in that are good ways to begin to live the life of heaven now. So with that, we, uh, we've come to the end. So uh, to, our, to our listeners, thanks again uh, for listening to God's Planning. We'd ask that you please follow us on Facebook, on YouTube, or excuse me, on Twitter, Instagram. I guess YouTube works too. Uh, read the script, Father Gregory. Like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app, and leave a five-star review. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, you can follow the link in the description or through the show notes. And there you'll also find links to shop our merchandise and to get information for upcoming God's Planning events. So our prayers are for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Planning. Mm-hmm.